of John, opening chapter. We're going to be there as we have been uh, for the last couple of weeks. And I think what Christmas does for us as people who love and follow Jesus is it teaches us the joy of anticipation, the joy of anticipation. We often think of anticipation as sort of torturous, you know, waiting for a package to arrive, waiting for the results on a test, waiting for a loved one to, to, to come home. Waiting can be tough. I don't know about torture, but it, it can sometimes be tough. Yet for many things, however, it's the waiting, it's the longing, the expecting that brings with it real excitement. Ask any coach during a championship season. It's not hoisting the trophy that he enjoys so much. It's the process, the season, all the little things that lead up to the final buzzer. That's where the joys are found. And Advent is similar. There is joy found in the anticipation. We are 10 days away from Christmas, and those kids that you saw do the Advent reading, they are about to flip out. They're so excited about Christmas. Uh, There is an anticipation that is making our house crazy, and it's a good kind of crazy. It's a joyful kind of crazy. But if your house is like mine, the anticipation really ramps up when, when the tree starts to get some gifts under it, when good stuff starts getting baked, when there's only one more week of school, This is a time of year when even going out to the mailbox is filled with anticipation because you know there'll be Christmas cards, and everyone loves Christmas cards with pictures and and family updates and all of that good stuff. However, when we actually stop and begin to look through all that we're anticipating, the gifts and the food and the more gifts, if we look through all of that and we get to the heart of Advent We know what it is we are really and truly anticipating. The root of all the joy and excitement that goes with this season is the celebration of Christ coming in the flesh. It's the the incarnation, God's arrival as a baby, as a child, who would grow up to be a man, the one who would live a perfect life and die a forsaken death, And he would rise again on the third day. And not only that, he would empower with his Holy Spirit all those who repent and believe in him, giving them hearts that love him and long to see him face to face. And ultimately seeing him face to face will happen when we die and stand before him or when he returns to rescue his own. And so this month, we not only anticipate a celebration of the greatest day in human history, the day that literally divides time in half, Christ's birth, but we're also anticipating the second greatest day in human history, when the Lord of glory returns for his own, the church, and in doing that, he'll be bringing all of human history to its consummation. That's what we anticipate as well. So to align with all that anticipation. In these weeks leading up to Christmas Day, we've turned our attention to John's Gospel. It's these three or four paragraphs that start John's Gospel, verses 1 through 18. And thus far, two very important truths have been clearly seen from this passage. First truth, the glory of Christ. There's no truth greater than that. The glory of Christ is seen here in these verses. The second truth, The depravity of man. The depravity of man. No truth more tragic than the depravity of man. 
The glory of Christ is seen when the Apostle John opens the gospel and he's describing the word. And you remember he uses a progression. In those first five verses he says, in the beginning was the word. Again, the word is Christ. Then he takes a step further and says, not only was the word in the beginning, but the word was with God in the beginning. Then he takes another step and says, not only was the word with God, the word was God. Christ is God eternally. He is very God of very God, co-equal with the Father, maker of all that was made. And then he writes that all life is in the word. All life is in Christ, meaning you can try to find life apart from Christ, but you won't find life. Life, abundant life, ultimately eternal life is in Christ. What a glorious description of Christ, of, of the word that we have in verses 1 through 4. But then the second truth, verses 5 through 8, tragically reveal the depravity of man. Verse 5 tells us the light, who is Christ, shines in the darkness, but the darkness failed to grasp it or understand it. Verses 6 through 8 then recount the mission of John the Baptist, whose ministry was to herald the coming light. He was a witness, the first of many witnesses in John's gospel, and he's crying out to any and all that the light was coming. His job as the last of the Old Testament prophets was to prepare, to to make a way, to say to Israel, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And that's exactly what he said. Verse 8 says that John the Baptist was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. And the reason I'm connecting John's ministry to the depravity of man is because since when and where do do people sitting in darkness have to be shown the light. If you're sleeping one Sunday morning and I come to your house and I throw open the shades and I flip all the light switches, would you need help knowing where the light was coming from? No, it would be annoyingly clear. But if you were blind, however, if you just flat couldn't see, you wouldn't know the difference. You wouldn't know if the lights were on or off, if the shades were open or drawn. And that's the spiritual plight of mankind, spiritual blindness. Spiritual blindness keeps you from seeing the light. So when light comes, it actually has to be announced to you. You have to be escorted to it and even told how to submit to it through repentance and faith. And so when you need to be shown what it means for there to even be light, that's what it means for man. Or that's what it means that man is totally depraved. It means that our rebellion against God is so total that everything we do in this rebellion is sin. Our inability to submit to God is total. And we are therefore totally deserving of eternal punishment. Total depravity doesn't mean that every man is as bad or he, as he or she is capable of being. It just means that every bit of them is fallen and sinful and in need of grace and redemption. So John the Baptist is heralding truth about this coming light to this people, all people, who are just locked in darkness. So the first eight verses, two astounding truths. Christ is glorious And man is blind because of sin. So blind he can't even see the glory 
of Christ's great light. I actually had a reminder of these two truths this week. We do an advent calendar at our house with our kids. Every night we uh, post a different piece of sort of the Christmas narrative up on this little uh, board or up on this cloth, and eventually it fills out sort of the manger scene. Um, Starts with the manger uh, then fills in some animals and the shepherds nearby and the, and the wise men and angels and so on and so forth. And it's really great. I and mean, it's become a cool tradition in our home. And so we're celebrating the coming of Christ. We're celebrating the coming of the Messiah, this, this baby born in a manger who would be our redeemer from, from sin and from death and from all the darkness and blindness that plagues us. And what happened this week is kind of ironic in that the kids... Well, it happens every year, actually. They begin fighting. They begin, they begin counting the days, figuring out who it is that gets to put baby Jesus in the manger on the 25th. And they're jockeying. Okay, I don't want to do it tonight, because if we go in order, I'll get to do it. I want to be the one to do it on the 25th, so no, it's your turn. No, it's your turn. No, it's your turn. It's not my turn. Oh, swells up into this big argument, and I'm like, this is why Jesus came. Right here. It actually took Mandy to point that out. Even our celebration of the coming of light is tainted and just smothered in our own darkness. So today we're going to keep moving through the prologue to John's gospel. And this morning we're going to read and study John chapter 1 verses 9 through 13, the verses that Mia read a minute ago. And what you're going to see here as we read this is John starts off the gospel as we looked at two weeks ago, with the pre-incarnate Christ, the Word. And then he moves to the pre-runner of Christ, John the Baptist. And now in our text this morning, we get to the incarnation, the actual appearing of Christ among us. I'm going to begin in verse 1, as I have for the last couple of weeks, and we'll go through verse 13. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, John writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. May God bless and use the reading of his word. So from this text, we'll look at four things primarily. That Christ appeared, that he was ignored. Not only that, he was rejected, but he was also received. Christ appeared, Christ ignored, Christ rejected, Christ received. First, Christ appeared. This section opens again with the word light. Light is one of John's favorite words in the book of John, right along with life and love. John is continually using the word light. But verse 9 has a descriptor concerning the light. It's the true light. And what he means by true is that Christ is the real 
original light, the true light. It makes sense that the originator of light would be the true light. The one who said, let there be light, he is the true light. This is illustrated in the wise men who come in the other gospel narratives in Luke and Matthew to, to visit Jesus. These were men from the east. They, they treasured wisdom. They were seeking truth. And what drew them to the city of David? It was the very embodiment of truth. It was a light. A star brought these truth seekers to the original light. Now there's another verse in John that helps us understand exactly what's being said about the true light. It's a verse that, that might otherwise confuse you. But upon the examination, or close examination, it gives meaning to what John means. If you look at chapter 5, verse 35, Jesus is talking about John the Baptist. And he describes John the Baptist this way. He says, he, John the Baptist, was a burning and a shining light. And you say, now wait a minute. The Apostle John said in verse 8 that the Baptist was not the light. But Jesus is saying John the Baptist was the light. Which is it? Is the Bible contradicting itself? No. The English translation can't get you the full meaning here. The Greek fortunately clarifies it. And it's because two different words for light are used in these two verses. In chapter 1, when it says Christ is the light, the true light, and John was not the light, the word used is phos, from which we get our word phosphorant, which means lighted. Phos means, now watch this, phos means the essence of light. It means what light is in and of itself, not its rays, not what we see, but the essence of light, the source of all light. Christ, his light is phos, his is the very essence of light. But in that passage in chapter 5, when it says John the Baptist was a burning and shining light, the word used there is luknos. And you you might know what that means. It means a portable lamp, kind of a Coleman lantern. Jesus is the essence of light. John is a portable lamp. And a portable lamp doesn't really have any light of its own. You're going to have to pour fuel in it and stick a match to it. You're going to have to tend to it and keep it shining. Its light is secondary. The light of Christ is primary. See the difference? big difference between being the essence of light and being a portable lamp. Jesus Christ is the very essence of light. This is why the next phrase explains that he gives light to everyone. Because it couldn't be gotten anywhere else. And so what's being said here is, is about giving light to everyone is that somehow, sovereignly, by God's power, every man has enough light to be morally responsible, accountable to a holy God. This is explained in Romans chapter 1. When it explains that all people in their sins, they're without excuse, they've seen something of the light of God, and they've suppressed that truth and exchanged it for a lie. So light had been given to man, enough of it to make him responsible, therefore the coming of Christ Jesus was the full, tangible embodiment of that very same light. And Jesus Christ embodied all of the innate spiritual flickering that exists in every man. But when Christ came, that flickering went from being suppressed in unrighteousness and it was as if the sun landed on earth. So Christ came with light to dispel the darkness, the darkness of doubt, to dispel the darkness of despair, to dispel the darkness of death. He came to do all of that and he was the only light that could do that because he's the essence of light. 
I am the light of the world. John 8, 12, that's what Jesus says. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. There is no other true light. And Jesus came in a way that every man could understand and know him as such. So you'd think with that kind of message, with that kind of appearing, with that kind of illumination, you'd think the world would run to Christ. That the world would stop and look and worship Christ. But they didn't. Look at the second half of verse 10. Yet the world did not know him. Second point, Christ ignored. Why don't men run to Jesus Christ? Why don't they bask in the light? Why don't they love the lovely Christ? John chapter 3, verse 19 tells us, The light has come into the world. Jesus has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. So it's not just that people were hopelessly blind, where we might say, oh, these poor people, they're so blind, they can't see the light. No, it's that people loved the darkness. People loved their sin. Loved their sin so much that it led them to ignore the light. The light could be shunned. It could be held in contempt. Look at verse 20 of uh, chapter 3. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light. Why? Lest his works should be exposed. Sinners don't come to the light because you know what happens when you come to the light? Your deeds get exposed. And if a man's not willing to face the fact of his sin, he's never going to come to Christ. That's why when Jesus came, men didn't run to him. Men loved their sin. They didn't necessarily love the consequence of their sin, but they were in love with their sin. So the world refused, and it still refuses the light of Jesus Christ. And if the world would refuse Christ, which is the total, complete revelation of God, they don't have then much t- trouble turning out the light that God has planted innately in them. And so when John tells us in verse 10 that Jesus was in the world, the world was made by him and the world knew him not, that's actually the gospel right there. Christ came, the one who made it all came, and what did men do with him? They didn't want him. That's the whole story of Christ's coming right there in that verse. He was no stranger here. He conceived of every person in existence. He himself was conceived of the Holy Spirit, went through 40 weeks of gestation, was born, he grew, he learned, he taught, he loved, he died. He bore men's sin, he bore man's judgment, all in the world that he had made with his own hands. And the very hands that he had formed out of dust would pick up hammers and would pound nails through their creator's hands. This was his world. Those were his men. That was his tree, his hill, his world. He made it. He came to it. It didn't know him. It loved its sin and its darkness. Therefore, it didn't know the unrecognizable, ignorable Christ, verse 10, the world knew him not. There was never such an infinite love, and there was never such a total ambivalence toward that love. But he wasn't just ignored. The passage continues. Look at verse 11. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. 
This is our third point, Christ being rejected. He came unto his own. His own what? I think his own has a primary reference, which is to Israel. The Hebrew people were his own. God said in Amos 3.2, Israel only have I known. Yahweh called them my own people throughout the Old Testament. He was Jesus was born into a Jewish family, born into the line of David. Jesus came to Israel, and Israel didn't want him. Israel joined with the rest of the world and said, we'll not have this man to reign over us. And they took him out on a hill, and they crucified him. Israel didn't want Christ. They didn't want him. Back in Isaiah, we see this prophesied. It's prophesied in Isaiah chapter 1. I'll just read it to you. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. The ox knows his owner, and the ass his, mother's crib, his master's crib, but Israel doesn't know. My people don't consider, O sinful nation. Let me go. The Gospel of John, as it begins in this first chapter, and as it sweeps right through to the very end, is a constant picture of the world's rejection of Christ. John is heralding the divinity of Christ. The world is rejecting him. From general to specific, to his own, to all that he made, to all that he lived, to see him, to his own, to the covenant people that despite the types and shadows and prophecies and law and the sacrificial system that he himself, Jesus, would ultimately fulfill to his own, they rejected him. They had all the revelation in the world that would point to him, and they rejected him. And to that, some might say, gosh, God must be, he must be terribly frustrated this whole plan to send Christ and, and then Christ is ignored and, and rejected. God must be frustrated. You be careful with that. God doesn't get frustrated. If God got frustrated, but you say, well, but, but look Christ. Look at how they re- rejected Christ. Look what this verse is describing. Look what the whole book of John lays out for us. You need to remember. He was the lamb slain from, the, from before the foundation of the world. The Pharisees and Romans didn't hijack God's plan. God sent his only son to save a people in himself. He came to call out a flock, a people, as he always does, a faithful remnant. And, and, and Jesus said it himself. You know what he said? I love these words. John six thirty seven. All that the Father gives to me shall come to me. He's going to finish. He's going to accomplish what he set out to do. God doesn't get frustrated. His church, the the group of believers that he has chosen to bring to his side by faith, they will come. They will come. And for centuries they have come. God's plan is never frustrated, which leads us to the final point in the outline, Christ received. If there are those who ultimately do receive Christ and not reject him, How is it these multitudes have come to him, come to the true light? Verse 12, But to all who have received him, who believe in his name, 
He gave authority to become children of God. So there are two things that must be, must be done so that you are not in party with those who reject, but rather so that you are a child of God. Receiving and believing. Receiving means that when Jesus offers himself to you, you welcome him into your life for what he is. You welcome him. John Piper says, if he comes to you as savior, you welcome his salvation. If he comes to you as leader, you welcome his leadership. If he comes to you as provider, you welcome his provision. If he comes to you as counselor, you welcome his counsel. If he comes to you as protector, you welcome his protection. If he comes to you as authority, you welcome his authority. If he comes to you as king, you welcome his rule. Receiving Jesus means means taking Jesus into your life for what he is. And he is at least savior, leader, provider, counselor, protector, authority, and king. That's the first condition in verse 12, receiving Jesus. The second condition is believing in his name. But all who received him, who believe in his name, he gave authority to become children of God. Believing. This means more than just saying a prayer or signing a card. It has the idea that Jesus is the Son of God from heaven. And then we trust in him and him alone. It means resting on him so completely that he is your only hope of heaven. It's one of John's favorite words, believe. In fact, he says believing is the purpose of the whole gospel of John, John 20, 31. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he's the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And to believe in his name means to believe in everything his name means. Jesus means the Lord saves. God's salvation is in Jesus. And then Christ, that's not Jesus' last name. Christ means Messiah or anointed king of Israel, meaning everything contained in history, in the Old Testament, it all points to Jesus. All of God's revelation is wrapped up in him. Receive and believe you are a child And you are a child of God. God is your father. You are his own. The moment you receive Christ into your life, God gives you the honor of becoming a member of his family. God gives the privilege of being his children to those who, by personal faith, receive Jesus as Lord and Savior. And then they believe in in everything God's word says that he, Christ, is. That's the gospel. That's what it means to come into God's family. That, that's what it means to, to know him eternally, to be secure and sealed by the Holy Spirit. It's receiving, receiving all that he is and believing all that he says he is. And that's not just intellectual, but that, that, that gets at your affections, that gets at your heart, it gets at your will, it gets at everything about you. And maybe you've never done that. Maybe you've kind of, kind of skirted around that sort of decision, skirted around that kind of commitment in your life. Maybe you've stayed sort of on the periphery of church. You kind of like the idea, but maybe you don't like all the claims that it makes on your life. Well, to be a child of God means to receive and believe. Not to take or leave. Not to skirt around, not to sidestep 
maybe the things you don't like, but to receive and believe all that he is. And you can do that today. Maybe that's where you're at today. You need to do that very thing. Finally, receive and believe that Christ is all he says he is and all that he shows to you in regards to your need of him. Verse 13 then explains how we become God's children. And I'll just conclude that. It says God's children were born, which makes sense. All all children are born. But they're born not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Let's go through those. Not of blood. So not by ancestry. This is important for John's Jewish audience. He needs them to know that their descent from Abraham does not equal being a child of God. Just as being born into a Christian family or going to a Christian school or being raised in a Christian nation, this does not equal being a child of God. So it's not of blood. It's not ancestral. So it's not by determining, just determining to be a Christian that you become a Christian. You cannot make yourself one. You cannot talk yourself into it. You cannot sort of, sort of sit back and study Christians and then act like them. Join their churches and call the Christian externals and become a Christian. It's not of the will it's not by thinking or, or possibility thinking that you become a Christian. So it's not a blood, a flesh. It is not the actions of some priest or parent. It's not the, the F or Q. Bishop or archbishop or pastor can pull this off, do this for you. As the text says, of God. Remember our study of Jonah? Back in August, we studied Jonah. And I hammered home Jonah 2.9. It's the center of the whole Bible. Salvation is of the Lord. That's what this verse is saying. You become a child of God, and you becoming that is of God. The heart of the gospel is a gift, totally free, totally grace. It's not sort of cooperative, God's his part. It's all gift, all grace. And someone might eject and say, are you saying part play in my salvation? Sure you have a part. Your part is to be hopelessly lost in your sin. Your part isn't to be saved. God's part is to save you. That's how it works. The work of God from the is of the person and work of Jesus. Trusting in that alone makes you a child of God. I'll just close with some, a couple of thoughts from Tim Keller. Keller is a pastor in New York City. And he writes this. He says, when you believe in Christ, you're adopted, again, this idea of becoming a child, you're adopted not on the basis of your record, but on his record. You're adopted into the family and treated as if you'd accomplished everything he's accomplished. That's the gospel. Somebody says, and that's too easy. I don't know how many times people have said that. That's just too easy. You mean you just receive it? Yeah, but you have to receive it through repentance. And that's what's not easy at all. The only way to get to that peace is through paying the pain of repentance. In other words, all you need is nothing, but most people. You see what he's All you need is to come to the end of yourself. Problem is, most people don't get there. But God, in sending Christ, took the step so that we could all see how desperate we are in need of grace and redemption and forgiveness. So desperate. Our sin is so exceedingly sinful that it took Christ 
the second member of the Trinity, the glorious person of the Godhead, to come and redeem a people for himself. And if God was going to do that, he was going to make sure that people would be redeemed. He was going to draw those men and women to himself. All that would come to him would surely not be lost. Maybe that could be you today. And maybe you come today celebrating that great fact that that is you today. Not because of your own will, not because of your own flesh, not because of your own and God. Thank you for your rich word. Thank you for uh, showing us that our need for Christ is not small. That our lives don't need just to be tweaked. We don't need just a little bit of work here and there. We need to be appalled. So we need to be known exactly what it means to believe upon you, to see you, to submit to you. God, I pray that if there's someone here today that needs to do that, they would do it. This curse would be forever changed because they would in their life. Piercing through the darkness, we do it to his way. Amen. True light has come into the world, the of night. And there's a song that I think speaks to that very well. And to sing along.